Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host, and very happy to be with you today. Thank you for tuning in. Again, it's a privilege to open uh, the Bible, the Word of God, to learn and to apply in our lives. We are going to talk about a very important subject today, waging love. And I hope that staying with us for this program, you'll understand more how love is received and applied. I would like to introduce our panel for today. Good to have you with us, Ken. Good to be here today. Thank you. And Helen, good to have with us too. Thank you very much, Nick. It's good to see the panel and it's great to be able to share with the listeners. And Brenton, thank you for joining us. Lovely to be here, Nick, and we are really looking forward to sharing this uh, amazing study with people. Lija, it's good to have you with us again. Very pleased to be here. And Lynn, thank you for joining. Well, thank you for the welcome and hello, listeners. And Lynn, uh, you are preparing this uh, Bible study and facilitating. Uh, thank you for doing that, and I would like to hand it over to you. Yes, sure. Very welcome. Well, as Nick mentioned in his introductory comments, the title of today's Bible study is Waging Love. So what does that mean? Well, here's uh, something that will help you understand. You've probably heard of the term waging war. That means proceeding to make war with another country or whatever. So waging love means proceeding to pour out love on someone. It also means doing love, demonstrating love, practicing love, fulfilling love and undertaking love. Now, last week, we considered some Old Testament verses, especially from Isaiah chapter 53 which foretold some of the specifics about Jesus Christ, who suffered much pain, humiliation and opposition from the leading classes of society in the Jewish economy. And yet he submitted himself the ignominy of death for the sakes of sinful human beings, including you listeners and us, the panel, who bring you this good news. Oh, what wondrous love that was. This study is about God waging love and how his followers should also wage love. You know, it's good to start any study with prayer. And of course, we've been doing this for a long time. And so before we delve into this study, Brenton is going to pray for us. Father in heaven, we are reminded as we study this topic today, that the uh, prayers of a righteous man availeth much. We are mindful, Lord, that what we're studying today is a group of people who we would call hypocrites. They acted one part, but their hearts were far from you. Lord, may we as a panel have our hearts cleansed and turned towards you today, and may our listeners also have the cleansing of heart that they need in order that they may receive the good things that this study has for us. Thank you for this time. We surrender our hearts and our lives to you. Lord, please fill us with your spirit today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Despite the short-sighted view by some Christians that the Old Testament is not worthy of serious consideration, is there any indication of the gospel message in it? Now, uh, Helen, would you like to read 
Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. See how the gospel is found in those verses. But prior to that, let me just state that if we go back to the first uh, Isaiah 1 and we look at it from 1 to 17, it's actually going through the sins of Israel and Judah. And then God comes in and he says, come, let us reason together. Another translation says, come now, let's settle this, saith the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. And and that certainly is telling us of the gospel message, what God is doing. May I just have a moment just to go through about the crimson part, which I found interesting when I was studying it. Crimson was the colour of deep red permanent dye, and its deep stain was virtually impossible to get rid of. The blood-stained hands of murder is probably, you know, you're thinking of here. But the stain of sin seems to be equally permanent. But God can remove sin stain from our life as he promised to do for the Israelites. We don't have to go through life permanently soiled. God's word assures us that if we're willing and obedient, Christ will forgive and remove our most indelible stains. If that's not the gospel message, I don't know what it is. Yes, all right. Well, that's that's wonderful. And uh, Ken, would you like to read Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6? Yes, then, just before I read that, I'd just like to add a comment about what we're saying about the Old Testament not being worthy of serious consideration. If you look around the world today, the majority of things in the world all have a base uh, to start from, and they need something to prelude it. And I believe that God has kept the Old Testament specifically because it's so much in tune with the New Testament, and it's certainly something that, I think it's vitally important to all Christians who are seeking the truth. Anyway, reading Isaiah 53 and verse 5 to 6, I'm reading from the King James Version, number 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think in many ways, this is a sad couple of verses. One way it's wonderful. The sad thing about it is that every single person on the face of the earth has rejected God, basically, and gone his own way and ignored God. And yet in verse 5 there, this is Jesus we're awfully talking about. He has come along and given everything for every human being on the face of the earth. Yes. So for anybody who disregards the Old Testament and say that it's just a whole lot of myths and legends has completely missed the point because it speaks the gospel message. All right, well, let's have two more references. There are at least nine altogether. What about Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7? Lidia, would you like to share that with us? Is this not the fast that I have chosen to lose the bones of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast, but when you see the naked, that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? So here it says love in action. It shows uh, waging love in action, and not theoretically, 
Whatever you know, you have to do. Yes, we'll be talking about this further later on. But they, these verses were quoted by Jesus in the synagogue at Bethlehem. And uh, people were amazed at his uh, what he said. And he was the one who actually sealed this prophecy made by Isaiah. Now, Nick, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, has something to say about the gospel too. In Jeremiah 31, verses 33 to 34. Would you share that with us? Sure, Len. And I just want to mention that uh, if we look into the whole chapter, chapter 31, uh, it talks about the hope of restoration. And um, these uh, verses, which I'm going to read, verse 33 and 34, it's uh, showing so clearly God's plan, God's business, if you like, of restoration. And it says, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, or will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. This sounds very good uh, and very much as the gospel, which Amen. God is, uh, is sharing with us in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There are at least five, uh, five other references in the Old Testament about the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of love in action. And this is highlighting love in action on God's part. Now, Helen. I'd just like to mention that it starts off the good news in Genesis 3.15, um, and it continues, if you go to Exodus 25 to 31, we have the gospel message uh, as an object lesson in the sanctuary all the way through Exodus and Leviticus. And if if you do a study, it is right through the Old Testament and the New. Yes, the good news. That's right. Okay, well, as Ken was saying about having a foundation on which to build, the Old Testament, of course, is the foundation on which the New is built. So now we come to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. Brenton, would you read that and share something about it? Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Now, isn't this a bit of a uh, controversy? It's a bit of a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. Um, I think one way of explaining it, Len, is that um, whilst the, um, the gift of eternal life is free, the cost... Uh, not to us, but to God, was incalculable. 
um, insofar as he gave his son to die for us. We can never understand what depth that was for God to allow his son to come to this earth and, and die for us. I see a lot of things in here. Yes, it is free. Um, really, he's saying, because we read Isaiah 53 last in our study last week, we studied about what the suffering servant would do. Now, what you're seeing here is an invitation to accept the benefits of what the suffering servant has done. And I find verse 2 interesting. Why do you spend money for what not, is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Uh, Len, I see in here actually something very interesting. It's called priorities. We live in a world where priorities, unfortunately, for many people are mixed up. Uh, we are told that God himself said in Matthew chapter 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All the things that are mentioned here, honey, milk, and all the other things that are bread or water, are really spiritual blessings. And if we seek those first, the other things will be added as well. But really, God is appealing to them through Isaiah, I think, by saying, what you're doing currently is you are wasting your money, so to speak, on the things of this world which will not satisfy. And if they do, they will only satisfy on a short-term basis. They will not produce long-term peace and happiness. And uh, he's, he's appealing to them to accept the real thing. The real thing was what Jesus said in John 6, verse 27, when he said to the Jews, I know why you, you're following me, because I fed you yesterday with the five loaves and the two fish. And he said, I don't want you to spend time thinking about the food I gave you. I want you to think about the spiritual food, the bread of heaven, which is the Son of God who came down from heaven. I think the challenge for us today, as we're sharing with our listeners, is don't spend time on the things of this world. Spend time on the things of God, because then you will be totally satisfied. Well, that was a very good erudite explanation. Thank you for that, Brenton. I really enjoyed what you had to say there. Now we go over a few uh, verses in the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. And here it's talking about where someone obtains mercy and pardon. Helen, would you like to share that with us? Yes, I would. But again, just before I do, let me add to what Brenton said. And that is, you know, when you think about food, physical food, it does cost money, but it only lasts for a short time and meets only our physical needs. Whereas God is offering free nourishment to feed our soul. And yeah. how do we get it? Well, if we notice from verse 1 right the way through to verse 7, there are a lot of active words there. It's an invitation to the Lord's salvation. In verse 1, it says, come, drink, come, take. Verse yep. 2, it says, listen. Verse 3, come, listen. Verse 4, see how I've used them. And, and then we get to verse 6 and 7, and it says, seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God. He will forgive generously. Here we've got again, seek, call, turn. And the result is he will forgive generously. So Isaiah is really telling us to call upon the Lord while he's near, 
God is not, by the way, planning on moving away from us, but it's us that often move away from him. So we don't want to depart from him. He is saying, here's my invitation. These are the things that I want you to do. And, and when we come together on all this, I will forgive you generously. What a great passage. Amen. Um, I think you've really said something there that's very important because verse 6 starts out, Seek the Lord while he may be found. And you said God's not in the business of moving away or something to that effect. The point is us, what we do. Sometimes we will feel impressed. We should really act on those moments and not put it off because... Tomorrow may never come. Brenton, you wanted to add something here. Yes, just just quickly lean on that. These are wonderful verses. Thank you, Helen, for sharing them with us. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. I interpret this in terms of probation. If you study the history of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, whenever a prophet or an apostle is preaching to the people and urging them to repent, it's always based on a time factor that the time to do it is now. There is an insinuation here, even though it's not stated explicitly, that God will not always be there. So therefore you must seek him while he, he is near. And I had a text from Hosea in chapter 5 where it said this. It said that they will come along with their sheep and their cattle to seek me, but they won't find me because I have left them. And uh, I think there's an important lesson to be learned from this. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous. Let him return to the Lord. God is there. He hasn't gone away. He will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Then it moves on to another part of the lesson, which you're going to touch on in a minute, and that is God's thoughts not being our thoughts. The abundant mercy of God is here, but it is not inexhaustible in the sense that it is always available. There will come a time where God's mercy no longer pleads, and the reason for that is because people have become so hard-hearted that they end up like Pharaoh in Egypt, where the clearest evidences of God they reject. When they reach that point, Len, there's nothing further God can do for them. This is why I believe Isaiah is urging them here to seek the Lord while he may be found. Yes, I just want to continue on that line because, um, uh, yeah, we can uh, come with um, all sorts of interpretation uh, about uh, what the Bible says. and But it's very clear that uh, in the Bible says that God turned away his face from his people at some point in time. Now, doesn't mean that God is not there because God is um, omnipresent. Um, but what I'm trying to say is when... God is turning away his face. Suffering will come. You'll experience the things which you don't want to experience. The enemy, Satan, will do his work. Remember that Israel was in captivity a couple of times. And God says, now I remember about the cry of my people. I mean, when? When they came to their senses. And my point here is that to seek the Lord while he's still near, is that you'll grow your relationship with God when, when that relationship is going both ways. You know, sometime the people of Israel said, God said, don't go now and fight those people. Say, and they say, no, we'll go. And God said, no, don't go. I would not be with you. 
And that's where we need to capture this thought that while we are in that relationship with God, then our growth and our uh, expansion, if you like, of, of faith, it's most precious. When, when God says, hey, you may, I may need to let you go into uh, some um, discipline, then it's a little bit hard because that discipline will come regardless. All right. And he had to do this in order to teach them a lesson. Anyhow, let's keep going. You know, there's an old saying that goes like this, and I've heard it many times. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Now, Ken, how does this apply to the waging love of God? Well, we're going to look at First Peter and verses 18 and 19, which states, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, with the precious blood of Christ as of lamb, without blemish and without spot. So here we see that there has been an enormous price paid by God for our souls. And of course, this price has been paid by Jesus. And if we look at Ephesians 2 and uh, 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So again, it's telling us that these are free. But I would like to add another verse here. I'd like to add uh, Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whosoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, although the, the gift of salvation is free, I do believe there is a cost that we have to pay in a way, and that is that we have to be like Jesus we have to have his nature, his his actions, and anything we can do to carry on the work that he started by denying ourselves and this, the worldly things in the world and to put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus and to see other people with love and to help them. All right, that was very good. So there's no such thing as a free lunch. There was a huge cost. It cost the life of the Son of God. You had to give up everything. So it was free to us, but it certainly wasn't free. Yeah, I was thinking that when we are given a gift, um, do we say, oh, that's very nice, but now how much do I owe you? That would be totally inappropriate, wouldn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah, so what would be the appropriate response to a gift? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, how often do Christians, even after they've been given the gift of salvation, feel obliged to try to work their way to God? Because our salvation, even our faith, are gifts, we should respond with gratitude and praise and joy. And, you know, we become Christians through God's unmerited favour, not the result of our effort or any service on our behalf or even intelligent choice, you know. However, out of gratitude for this free gift, we will seek to help and serve others with kindness, love and gentleness. I think we need to put that all in perspective. I mean, I know of a lady who her daughter gave her a pot plant. She didn't exactly say how much is it. She gave it back to her and she said, I don't want it. And I think of that in the line of, of many people. God is, is here. He's pleading with us to take his wonderful gift and yet some people are literally either pushing it away or saying, 
how much does it cost? I have to, I have to pay for it. And that's not what God was saying. Brenton? Uh, I think um, Helen's probably covered most of what I was going to say. But when you look at the, the first text that Ken read, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter is using an illustration here by pointing out to them the way they should live. If you go back a few verses, he actually says a little bit further back uh, that we are to be holy as God is holy. Then he gives us the reason as to why God wants us to be a holy people. It's based on the gift of salvation. He then uses the illustration of silver and gold. Now, let's face it, most of the people that he was writing to, Len, probably didn't have the money for any significant amount of silver or gold, but they understood the value of silver or gold. He's comparing that and contrasting that with the precious blood of Jesus. He's saying, according to the value that you see in what has been offered to you, your response should be commensurate. In other words, when you begin to understand even a little bit the sacrifice of God in Christ, in sending Jesus to die for us, our, our response should be exactly what we've discussed. Our response should be, as Ken read from Matthew 16, our response should be taking up our cross daily and following him. In other words, allowing our lives to be so totally changed that the gift that God gave through Jesus on Calvary was not wasted. It was not in vain. And we will see the results of that when we get to heaven when we see Jesus and he sees that his suffering and his death for us was not in vain. As I ask myself that question often, will God's marvellous gift, the outpouring in his love, be wasted on me? Yes. Forbid it, that should ever be. Nick, you wanted to say something. Yes, I I just uh, wanted to add and probably put a little bit a different spin on uh, on this passage. Come, those of you who don't have money and buy. I believe we understand the gift a little bit different. A gift is something which is somebody comes to you and gives you a gift. That's how usually we understand, yes? That somebody comes to you and gives you a gift. In this context, the key word is come. Come to me. Now, I can relate to this because... If you live in a poor country or like uh, where I grew up, a communist country, there are certain things which are given by the government, but you need to go there to get that thing which was offered. And this is probably where we have a problem with the gift, because actually when we are invited to go and buy, even though we don't have the money, is that we make that effort. Now, doesn't mean that's on our merits because we don't deserve anything which is given to us. But it's because we appreciate that, as Helen said that. I mean, you have to have that attitude, which can almost equal with the buying aspect. Yeah. I would like to add here in regard to the gift that we received from Jesus the salvation. It was not a gift bought with money or material things, as it says in the Bible, not with corruptible things like silver, gold, or some other things, but it was paid with with blood, with suffering, with its own life. 
So salvation is free for us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. And our works can never be good enough to save us. And uh, for us, at the same time, it can cost everything. So in return, we can accept, as Helen said before, with gratitude, uh, praise, joy, and in return to offer Jesus our love, our acceptance, our willingness to serve him. And I think Lydia mentioned something very important there, that if you know and understand the gift, the grace of God, that costs you everything. It's not that, uh, okay, yes, uh, I can receive this one, but I can do some other things. Actually, it will cost you everything if you want to follow God. It's not just a, a part of your time, a part of your love, a part of your whatever it is, but it'll cost you everything. That was very well said. So, Brenton, humanly speaking, the Jesus who's God the Word should give up his glory in heaven to be made as a man and then, as a sinless being, taking the punishment for our sins on himself to save sinners sounds to be completely crazy. Yes. What does the Bible say about this? Well, what it says is we did read verse 7 earlier on, Len, so I'm not going to go over that too much, but I do want to read verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. A number of things come to mind as I read these two texts. First and foremost, we have used these texts in the past many times to say, ah, well, we can't understand God's ways because God's ways are so much higher than ours. And then we immediately quote this text and saying, well, we can't understand how God works because he has said himself, you cannot understand how I work. We have to recognize that these verses are attached to what went before it. It's part of the overall picture. The overall picture is God's grace and God's mercy and the invitation that he is offering to um, his people and beyond that, actually, to the whole world in these verses. So the way I see these verses, we cannot understand, number one, why God would send his son to this earth. Now, we know from other sources that Jesus offered himself willingly as a sacrifice on our behalf. We know, we know that. But nevertheless, there was a, what was needed was consensus, I guess, agreement between the Father and the Son that Christ would come and die for us on Calvary. Now, we didn't deserve it. We've covered that many, many, many times. But the, the picture that I get here is that it's an unfathomable mystery because in our society, you would rarely find anybody who would be willing to lay down their lives for a, to a group of totally ungrateful people. And that's essentially what you've got here. So when it says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, as the heavens are higher than the earth, I think it's referring to the plan of salvation and the fact that it, the, the intent of the plan of salvation is so much beyond our ability to grasp it that that's one of the things that we'll be studying throughout eternity. And as you said at the beginning of the lesson, Len, oh, what wondrous love. I mean, what a way to start a Bible study. 
I think that this, um, these verses should help us to realise that God's compassion, which is so much greater than ours, we need to pray that he will give us his compassion to show to others because unless it is demonstrated in showing this compassion to those around about us, in particularly to those who cannot pay us back and to those who are working for the Lord, I think our, all our pretensions of righteousness are a waste of time. What a wonderful passage of scripture this is. Now God's waging love is a mystery. Yes. Considering all the bad that we and you listeners have done, yet we are assured that his love is genuine, demonstrated through Jesus offering himself to take our punishment on himself. Oh, what love. Well, now we turn to a different issue about the reception of God's love. And Helen, I want to ask you, and you can have a fairly quick answer here if you like do you ever fast and what is fasting and if you fast why isn't it funny when i read the word fast i think of how how i talk fast and i do everything fast here of course we're not talking about that there yes i have fasted in the past i don't do it as much as i used to but yes i have fasted but i always join them together with fasting and prayer for me um i don't fast just for my own benefit normally. I do know some people that fast because they want to lose weight. I do know some people that fast um, because of Lent and um, that session has just come up and um, I have some dear friends who, you know, I, I used to go and visit them just before Lent and, and they every year they made their decision that they were going to fast for some from something particular. It doesn't just mean food. I think one year the husband said, I'm going to fast. No, the wife said, I'm going to fast from alcohol. And um, the husband wouldn't have a bar of that. He said, I'll fast from chocolate, you know, and things like that. Um, so there are various things that people think about fasting. But basically the fast that most people do, although it can be beneficial spiritually and physically, at best it is fasting only helps the person doing it. We're going to discover in a moment what God actually means by his true fast okay ledger you'd like to add a comment yes usually if we can explain fasting it's doing to us a good thing first of all physically and mentally makes our brain clearer and is detoxifying our bodies so this is one purpose the second purpose is to draw closer to god because as we, as our minds are much clearer, we can think differently. We can think more deeply. And, uh, um, fasting from food, uh, usually, uh, you can fast also from water also, but water is very essential. Our brain as gets in contact with God in that day. If I'm fasting today, I'm not fasting just to fast but I also commit to the Lord more closely. So this is a double uh, victory for me. I detoxify my body, first of all, and secondly, um, I draw closer to God and I'm, I understand uh, his word differently in, more, in a more deeply way. So usually fasting, the purpose of fasting is to draw closer to God. 
All right. Well, there are personal benefits obtained in fasting. I was just going to uh, say, because, yeah, this is a very interesting aspect, uh, and we can go on and on on uh, on the benefits of fasting, or we can explain from our own point of view. Clear in the Bible is that fasting is a way of having a good relationship with God and also to help others. Because Jesus' words were this kind of demons. They're not coming out unless you pray and fast with a lots of prayer and fasting. In this passage, which we are looking in uh, Isaiah, God is not disqualifying or um, how to say, looking secondary for the importance of fasting. But unfortunately, you can focus too much on one thing and leave aside the other thing, which is the same importance or maybe even more important. It's actually how you can combine these things together. I don't think so. God would have said to, to his people, don't fast anymore, but do these things. Uh, I think that God said, do these things which you let it undone and keep fasting. Okay, well, we're going to come to this a little more. Uh, Helen, you have a brief comment? Yeah, a brief comment. Um, I have a very dear friend who fasts once a week, and it's normally on Fridays, and um, she prepares her her heart spiritually for the Sabbath as well as, you know, the physical side. And um, she, the other night she was impressed, she believes, by God why are you fasting and is it to make you appear proud, you know, proud with other people? And it pulled her up a bit, you know, in the fact that she had to go back to God and say, I, I believe I was fasting for this, this and this, but a little bit of pride was creeping in because, you know, hey, I'm doing this. And and I think we're going to discover this um, when we look further into Isaiah 58. You know, there is a statement there, and I just want to pinch this a little bit. God says, fasting to please yourself. And we may not we may not even realize we're just pleasing ourselves. We may actually have the right mind to say I'm doing this, but we have got to be very careful with it as well. But I agree with the comments, especially what Lydia was saying before. Thanks, Len. Well. You know, God actually commanded fasting in for, for the Israelites in one of their special ceremonies each year. And that was the Day of Atonement, which is commonly known these days as Yom Kippur. Yes. And this practice continued for centuries. But here in Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 6, God is um, remember, we're talking about waging love, and God is pointing something out that was wrong with their fasting, and Nick alluded to this a little earlier. Brenton, would you like to share this with us? The first verse uh, simply says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. It doesn't start on a positive note. But what it does start with, it states very categorically that God knows exactly what you're doing and uh, you're not fooling me by going through the motions of fasting, whether it's for whatever reason, as Lydia told us, God says, I'm really not interested. Then you go to verse 2, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinances of their Lord or their God. 
They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Now, when you come to verse 3, it reminds me, Len, it's eerily similar to what you find in the book of Malachi, where there seems to be a dialogue going on where God is actually revealing that he understands their thinking, and their thinking is, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you do not take notice? I see included in this verse the suggestion that they know that they're doing wrong because they're really arguing with God. Um, And the reason they would be arguing with God is because I believe they've got a guilty conscience. Why have we fasted and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls? and you take no notice. Look, if we just go through the ceremonies of going to church on Sabbath and going through all the other things that we do, God is no more interested in that than he is in what's happening here. And he says, in fact, this is God speaking, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Really what they're doing, Len, is they're fasting for the purpose of, number one, commending themselves to God, and number two, hoping that that fast will cover the exploitation of their labourers, the poor, the needy, the fatherless, the widows. Um, They think that this will cover all of it. And uh, he says, you will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul. Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? He's he's not only rebuking them, condemning them for their fast, he's trying to reason with them and saying, seriously, guys, do you think that I'm not mindful of the way you treat those around about you? Um, You're not fooling me. I do understand what's going on here. And I don't want you to be deceived into thinking that your fasts are acceptable to me. Then he tells them what God's view of fasting is. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? That's a verse we should underline. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens. Can I suggest they're financial as well as other? To let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. Christ mentioned these in Luke chapter 4 when he quoted from another part of Isaiah when he was in the synagogue of his hometown. I think the bottom line here is that God says your fasts are not acceptable to me in their current way because, number one, your attitude is wrong and, number two, because of what you're doing. I think Isaiah 58 really is, uh, shall we say, an explanation of putting the law of God into practice. And these people are simply not doing it. Uh, I believe there's a very strong lesson for us here in 2021, Len. Are we similar to these people? Are we going through the motions? Are we uh, presenting ourselves as extremely holy to God? And God says, I'm sick of your fasts. I want you to show by practical action and by the right motive, because you can still do good things. A lot of people around do good things for others but you have to have the right motivation for doing these good things. The fast he's chosen is for us to loose the bonds of wickedness. We're to do it in Christ's name, with Christ's character, and with Christ's motivation, uh, first and foremost. I think that summarises those six verses, Len. All right. Um, It's basically saying 
But God doesn't care for traditions. Yes. What he cares for is what goes on in our hearts. Helen and then Ken. I just quickly want to say that this is a summary of religious hypocrisy and yeah. it's it's good for us to think about all these things that God have said and make sure that we're not following the same path. I think Brenton hit the nail on the head when he said it's your attitude or what is motivating you. Thanks, Brenton. All right. Now, Ken, what did God really want from his people? Okay, well, we're reading uh, Isaiah 58, verses 6 to 10. And again, basically just uh, enlarging what Brent was saying, the fast that, that God has chosen is not the fast that the people are choosing. They're basically um, having uh, an outward sign of righteousness, but inside they haven't got the righteousness. And uh, so I know we're running short of time, so basically I'm just going to summarize it. So basically what God is looking at, he's not looking at the people He's looking at inside the people, their thoughts, their hearts, and what their motivation is. Whereas the people, they're looking on the outward appearance, say, oh, well, look what we're doing, we're fasting, and uh, other people would be perhaps looking at them and go, they must be very holy people, they're doing all this fasting and having a hard time. But inwardly, their hearts and minds are far from God, and God is trying to get them to realize that he wants the inward person, the inward soul, the inward heart to be fasting and connecting with him. All right. That was a very nice answer. I like your answer there, Ken. Now, Lydia, in 1 John 3.18, it's kind of a summary of how our love should be expressed, not just going through forms and ceremonies. Would you like to read 1 John 3.18? Yes. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I think um, I would like to comment here a little bit. Whatever God wants from us is that when I'm planning to fast, to humble myself in front of God, to repent of my sins, to confess all of them to him and to ask God to wash me, to cleanse me through the blood of Jesus and to surrender all my entire being to him and to be kind and loving to all those around me and show kindness and love and pity to all those around me. So this is what Jesus did with with the people around him. So this is the purpose of fasting, drawing closer to to God in love, and at the same time drawing closer to all those around me. All right. So as far as waging love is concerned for the Christian, it's not just by what goes on in our minds and hearts. It's how we express it. And First John 3.18 in the Good News Bible, and my children, I had to learn this when they were small, my children... Our love should not be just words and talk. It must be true love, which shows itself in action. Now, this is basically taken up in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 27. Would you like to share this with us, Nick? Sure, Len. And uh, just before I read this passage, beautiful passage from uh, James, chapter 1, verse 27, I'd like to just mention this, that... um, 
as we were talking about fasting and uh, then uh, do the other things. Brenton touched on that when he said, you know, God didn't say, okay, forget about fasting. God said, this is the fast I would like you to practice, you know, uh, to do good, to look after the orphans. And I'm, I'm reading now the verse 27, which says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father, means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And we live in a time in history when we are very individualistic oriented, very selfish people, just me, me, or us, you know, just looking inwards, rather than to see the bigger picture which God wants us to see. And Len, earlier you mentioned also that this command to say so from God to his people to practice fasting, particularly during uh, or before the Day of Atonement, in preparation for the Day of Atonement. Now, we are in preparation for the Day of Atonement when Jesus will come again to free us. How are we living in these days? Are we living carelessly? Are we just focused inward, just selfishly, and all those things? Or are we really caring for the needs of the people which surrounds us? This is the big question. We can talk around, we can say nice things and words, but our we have to look at ourselves. Are our actions speaking loudly for what we are teaching? Yes, well, that's very challenging, isn't it? The text that you read from James says that there is a requirement in the expression of our love to care for the needy. But there's another thing that I think a lot of people miss, and that's to keep ourselves unpolluted from the world. In other words, to live good, righteous lives as well as caring for the needy. Our time is marching on, and... I want to ask this question and a fairly brief answer, if you don't mind. Does this mean that doing good works in the name of Christ is enough? Brenton, I put this to you. I'll give you a brief, concise answer. It mentions two texts, which I'm not going to read, but I will summarise one of them. Matthew seven twenty-one to 23 says, Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not uh, cast out demons in your name and done many wonderful things in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. I think the simple summary is it's not so much the good works, Len. I'll reiterate what I said earlier on. It's the motivation for doing the works that God looks at. Remember, God can see the heart. Others can't see our good deeds. They can only see the result of our good deeds and they apportion um, a claim or um, praise for what they see. But God can actually see what the motivation for this is. And I think simply doing good works in Christ's name is not enough because only the motivation of love is acceptable to him. Yes, I like your answer. That was very well said. Helen. 
Um, I, I believe that they were the saddest words in the whole Bible. Yes. Well, one, some of the saddest words are, you know, the cross and the crucifixion yeah, are sad, but to have people go through life believing, as Saul of Tarsus believed, he was doing God's will and God met him on the road and, and showed him his mistake. But how sad to get to the kingdom and then discover that God, you know, says, I don't even know you. That's just sad. But anyway, let me just um, share with you that the thoughts that anyone can be religious Anyone can go through religious rituals, even the right rituals, at the right time with all the right formulas. But that alone is not what the Lord wants. Look at the life of Jesus. However faithful he was to the religious rituals of his time, the gospel workers focused so much more on his acts of mercy, healing, feeding and forgiveness to those in need than on his faithfulness to, faithfulness to ritual. The Lord seeks a church, a people who will preach truth to the world. But what will better attract people to the truth as it is in Jesus? Strict adherence to dietary laws or a willingness to help the hungry? Strict rest on the Sabbath or a willingness to spend your own time and energy helping those who are in need? You know, we need the example of Jesus and we need to follow him. Yes. Have you mentioned the Sabbath there? In Matthew hmm. 5, chapter 58, verse 13, there's a fairly important statement made by God given through the prophet Isaiah about the Sabbath. So is it important to keep the Sabbath or not? Is that just another festival, Helen? Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting when you look at Isaiah 58 and you've seen the first part that we've been going going through has been talking about fasting and what have you, 6 to 12, um, and then it comes straight on in verse 13 to 14, and it's talking about rest, as you just mentioned, Sabbath rest. In fact, 5813, um, it says that calling the Sabbath a delight. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath. Speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy days. Honor the Sabbath and everything you do on that day, and don't follow your own desires or talk idly you know how is it possible to keep call the sabbath of delight and at the same time refrain from doing what pleases us but i'd like to bring back just a thought on this one too that it is linked very much with the fasting side because if you look at it fasting you know nobody is eating and resting nobody um is working and so it puts everyone on an equal basis if you'd like and and i thought there are three main themes that have come out on this week's lesson. And uh, when I thought of those, I thought, well, they kind of sum up them. You know, mercy for everyone, the way to get to life and return unto God. And I thought, well, yeah, that's true. But it's also about self-denial, social kindness and the Sabbath. The Sabbath comes into it. It's a response to God's love for us. I don't keep the Sabbath because the law says keep the Sabbath. I keep the Sabbath because it's my response to my love of what God has done for us. And we read all about that in Isaiah 53. And, and I just, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that's my reason for keeping it. All right. Well, now we have three things. There were two pointed out in James. And here's another one. Our love response what God has done for us should be in helping the needy, living a righteous life. And here we have a third one, honouring God through keeping of the Sabbath. Ken, could you very quickly 
summarize today's study. Isaiah 55 and 58, the prophet appeals to his people to give up their thoughts and ways and return to God, whose idea for their happiness is so much higher than their own. He mercifully pardons and then insists that the pardon be merciful in harmony with the spirit of the day of atonement and the Sabbath, because the gift of God's forgiveness, it is truly received, transformed the heart. And real quickly, I just want to add one of some of the key words there is to give up their thoughts and rather let their thoughts return to those of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Ken. I think this has been a very important study for us to understand the great love of God. And it also helps us to understand that there is a, I hesitate to call it a responsibility or a duty, but a outcome of us experiencing the love of God, that we also love just as God has loved in wanting to be faithful and true to God, but also to care for those around us and to respond to their need. So thank you for joining us today, listeners. But before we close, I would like us to close with prayer. So Lydia, would you like to pray for us and our listeners? Glorious Father in heaven, thank you so much that today you reminded us again how waging love means in actions. Father, please cleanse our hearts of all unrighteousness and fill us uh, with your Holy Spirit to be able to be full of your divine love, kindness, mercy, self-denial, showing love and pity to all around us. Father, we really need this process of surgery in ourselves for our hearts to be transformed by you. Please place your law in our minds and write them in our hearts to be able to apply the, the active words in our actions to represent yourself, your character in our lives, not just having an uh, external religion. Father, we trust that you listen to our uh, prayers as you always did before. Thank you so much for the gift of salvation that Jesus gave it to us free, but with the cost of his life, his, his precious life. Father, we thank you for everything and we love you and we praise you and we honor you in Jesus precious name. Amen.